Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Vineyard Church Podcast. In today's episode, Identity Theft, our lead pastor, Chris Figaretti, shares the impact our culture has had and the biblical truth about how we define our identity. Let's take a listen. Well, good morning. I am not Johnny Cash, but he has played on this stage. Just want to be clear about that, and I missed him, but I'm very sorry about that. Anyway, glad that you're here. My name's Chris. If you're new with us, I'm the lead pastor. If you're new with us, we are going through a series in the book of Genesis, but we hit the pause button. So we, I don't know, for 16 or 18 weeks, we were going through Genesis, and then we hit Sodom and Gomorrah, and I decided uh, with my staff, I kind of took this to the staff and said, This really begs the question of what God has to say about sex and sexuality because Genesis up to that point, and actually as we go on from here, we're diving back in next week, is full of all kinds of very confusing sexual content. And a lot of it is in there not as an example for us to follow, but mistakes for us to avoid. But clearly, what does the Bible say about sex and sexuality? That's an important issue in the day that we live in. So we hit the pause button. We're doing this two-week mini-series on we're calling the sex factor. And uh, last week, we talked about God's design and his plan for sex. Um, and if you missed that, I strongly encourage you, especially if you have kids, because you need to be having these conversations with your kids. But even if you don't, all of us need to know what God says about this topic. And so last week we dealt with with just the plan and the design of sex. This week I want to deal with identity theft. And yes, I am going there. Now, if you are in uh, or if you identify as LGBT or Q, I want to say something very, very important on the front end. I am so glad you're here. Uh, we have many people who, who de- uh, identify as one of those things who come to our church because our church is a safe place where you will be loved, where there is community, and where you can find and follow God uh, and wrestle with it, whatever you're wrestling with as you do that. And, uh, and I want to, on, on behalf of, because there's this culture war going on and in our culture, and, uh, and we're supposed to be on different sides of that. The church and Christians are supposed to be on the different side of the culture war than people who are LGBTQ. I don't buy any of that. I don't think, I, I, I mean, there is a culture war going on, but I'm not your enemy and we're not your enemy. We, we, um, we are here to help people find and follow God and we're here to help all people find and follow God. So on behalf of Christians everywhere, uh, if you have been mistreated by Christians, I am very sorry. That is not what I believe God calls us to do or the kind of people he calls us to be. The church should be the safest place on earth. It should be a place full of community and love and grace. I'm going to be very clear on the front end about that. Jesus was full of grace. In John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, speaking of Jesus, John says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of what? Full of grace. Jesus was full of grace. He offers grace to people who are jacked up in a variety of ways. But he was also, it says there, full of truth. He wasn't the balance of of grace and truth. He wasn't drawing a fine line between grace and truth. He was fully grace and fully truth. And so today... What I want to deal with is both, grace and truth. Truth is really important. Can we just be clear about that? Truth, Jesus said, and Jesus knows, truth sets us free. The truth will set you free. Um, and, and I think there's this misunderstanding in our culture today that, that somehow truth is, is un, unsafe. And I I don't believe that. I think the truth is is actually what we all need. It's what we should all pursue over just about anything else. It's not unsafe. It can be uncomfortable. Don't confuse unsafe for uncomfortable. The truth will challenge you. It'll challenge what you believe. It'll challenge how you're living, and it's supposed to. But it's not unsafe, and that's important to know. They're not the same thing. If you should want anything, you should want truth, because believing a lie can kill you. Living 
Eli can kill you. If I were to go to the doctor for my annual physical and he ran all these tests and I come in and, and I sit down and he's, he walks in kind of solemn and says, well, Chris, you know, you got cancer. And I, I mean, and I responded like visibly upset. I'd be, you know, and, and so not to upset me, he were to respond with, but it's not a big deal. It's no big deal. We're just going to give you some aspirin. Everything's going to be fine. You know, now is that, is that the truth? No. The truth is that they have to go in and cut that out to save my life. The truth is that the truth is that it's going to be painful. It's going to be a process that it's, it's going to suck. That's the truth. But at the end of all of that, I've saved my life versus take some aspirin and die in a few months. What's the loving thing in that situation? Guys, affirmation of a lie is not love. I want to be very clear about that as well. If you have cancer, your doctor telling you, ah, it's no big deal, is not loving. It's not loving. Again, if you are LGBTQ, I am excited that you're here. I hope you keep coming back. I hope that you find community and the most loving, safest place on earth for you to find and follow God. But for all of us, every single one of us, what the truths that I'm going to share today are going to challenge us on a variety of topics and maybe make us a little bit uncomfortable. And I want to challenge all of us to open our hearts and minds and to hang with me because there's hope here in this message. What I'm about to share with you is countercultural for sure. I might get canceled and I might offend you, but just know that I love you. So many Christians have bought into the cultural narrative on a variety of, of subjects over and above what Scripture says. And, and guys, when we, when we run into that conflict, rather than shut down or run away, we need to wrestle with the conflict. We need to wrestle with what Scripture says, and we're going to do that today. You know, we're in an interesting place as a culture, aren't we? We're in an interest, I mean, just, I mean, on so many levels, we're in an interesting place on a culture. And in stunning, at a stunning pace, we're watching culture kind of unravel in front of our eyes, which is, is unsettling for sure. But the question is, how did we get here? How did we get here? You know, one of the things that, that uh, one of the, the lies that our culture has has kind of adopted and many, 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 many Christians have adopted that we don't even know. It's just kind of a cultural undercurrent is something that we consider truth and that's this, that what I feel is truth, right? Like there used to be objective truth. Now there's, you know, culturally speaking, there's my truth. Whatever I feel is true is true. Now when you stop and think about it like rationally for a minute, that's nuts because our feelings are all over the board. You follow your feelings, you're going you know, to be everywhere. You can't build a life with any solidity to it based on your feelings. I mean, but as a culture, this is the narrative that we have bought into. Whatever I feel is true is true. That's my truth. I read a book uh, a while back on this called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a 400-page book. It's super scholarly, kind of goes into the philosophical roots of how did we get here from there. And he traces this line of thought all the way back to the French Revolution. There was a, a philosopher in France. Now I've just lost all of you, right? A philosopher in France in the 1700s. Now this is actually really interesting. So there's this philosopher in France named Rousseau. And Rousseau is, is the, he's kind of the, the philosophical roots of the French Revolution. And, 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 and his idea is this, you know, our reality is what we feel. He leans atheistic or is atheistic and, and all that. And the French Revolution, this is, I love history. I hope you love history too. But if you don't, I'll, I'll be your friend anyway. But he, when you look at the French Revolution, it was, they looked to the American Revolution, which had just happened for inspiration. You know, they even adopted this idea of liberty and throwing off tyranny, and they built it all on, on these ideas coming from America. But the French Revolution went terribly wrong. I mean, blood in the streets, guillotines, uh, and all, ultimately it didn't end in liberty. It ended with another tyrant. And the difference was 
that the French Revolution was built on the ideas and the philosophies of Rousseau, and the American Revolution was built on the ideas and the philosophies of the Bible and Christianity. And they ended up in two very different places, because although it might be boring to talk about a 17th century or a 16th century French philosopher, it has real impact on where we live today. And if you trace his thinking through the years, it runs in, you know, we run into the 1800s, we meet a a philosopher, um, I lost my place. Oh, yeah, there we are. We, we meet a I knew the philosopher. I just needed to know where I was going next. So we, we meet a philosopher named Nietzsche who is a, a, an atheist, and he builds on these. He's from Germany. He builds on these philosophies of uh, Rousseau. We end up with Nazi Germany coming out of the philosophies of, of Nietzsche. Uh, doesn't end well. I mean, this is where this always ends. Uh, this is why history is important. Uh, then Karl Marx picks up these ideas and, 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 and develops them a little bit further. Karl Marx leads into the philosophy of what? Marxism and communism through the, the 20th century that killed 100 million people doesn't end well. And then at the beginning of the 20th century, oh, in the middle, we, we also throw in a little bit of Darwin who gives everybody an excuse to not believe in God anymore, which is a bunch of bunk when you really stop and look at it. But at any rate, all these kind of build on each other to get us to where we are today, a godless society where we are what we feel and we're built on our feelings. Now, the sex part comes at the beginning of the 20th century with Sigmund Freud. I talked about Freud last, last week how his philosophy was that, that the, the, the sex drive and sexuality is the, kind of the center of the human experience and human fulfillment and human motivation. Me, many, if not most, of his, his uh, philosophies have been debunked, but it was too late. His influence has taken root in our culture and has grown from there. And then we run into a guy, um, well, before I, get to, before I get to Kinsey, let me talk... Uh, Quote, John Benton. John Benton's a a theology professor at a a, uh, seminary in London. He summarizes Freud this way. This is what he said. This was brilliant. He said, Freud equated happiness with genital pleasure. Yes, I just said that from the stage. Freud equated happiness with genital pleasure. He places the sex drive at the very core of what it is to be human. It's our identity. Before Freud, sex was for procreation and pleasure. Go back and listen to last week. It's super important that you understand what we covered last week. Now it's who we really are. It's our identity. And guys, as, as if you're a follower of Jesus and you're swimming in the, in the pickle juice of culture, we've adopted a lot of these ideas and we haven't even known it. The happiest person is the one who is able to constantly indulge his or her sexual desires. In other words, the best life has no restraint, sexually speaking. That's kind of the undercurrent. Nobody's saying it out loud. Some people are saying it out loud. But that's kind of the the internal kind of true north for, for our culture and for so many of us. Last week, I talked about the Kinsey experiments and how he built on the theories of Freud in the 19... 40s and 50s and at Indiana University and hired a bunch of pedophiles to sexually stimulate babies all the way up to adolescence to, to uh, prove that, that children were, were sexual and should be sexualized and, and to promote a homosexual lifestyle. That was part of what he was doing. Now, his data was all found fraudulent later as well, which is interesting. But again, long after the fact, and his ideas have taken root in our culture, in our education system, in our entertainment, and everywhere. And so that's going on. He had a contemporary, I know, I'm talking philosophers and, well, scientists. So um, he had a contemporary. In 1955, there was a guy named Dr. John Money. John Money uh, was a sexologist and a psychologist at Johns Hopkins. And he is known as the father of gender. Like, the word, uh, like before John Money, gender was strictly a literary device. You had feminine and masculine words, right? The idea of gender out, you know, applied to a human being like, like you're either male or female. 
Like that, for 5,000 years, that's how it was. You're either male or female. In 1955, we first find the words coming into the, into the English language, gender role, gender identity, sexual orientation. They didn't exist before 1955 and John Money. Now, all of modern gender theory is built on the philosophies and the ideas of Dr. John Money. He's the grandfather, the great father, or, or father of, of modern gender theory. Who is this guy? Well, he promoted open marriage, the idea that you can get married, but you should be able to sleep with whoever you want and, you know, go for it. He promoted group sex and orgies. He was much in favor of that. Salon Magazine referred to him as ambivalently supportive of pedophilia, which is a major understatement. He differentiated between sadistic pedophilia and affectionate pedophilia. He believed consensual sexual relationships between grown men and children should not be considered disordered. Here's a quote. If I were to see the case of a boy aged 10 or 12 who is intensely attracted to a man in his 20s or 30s, if the relationship is totally mutual and the bonding is genuinely totally mutual, then, it would n then I would not call it pathological in any way. That's a little more than ambivalently supportive. Well, from 1955 into the early 60s, he's developing these theories of, of gender identity and, and sexual orientation and gender role. In 1965, his opportunity comes. There's a pair of twins that are born the Raymer twins, Bruce and Brian Raymer, they're born with a, a birth defect called phimosis where their penises were deformed. They needed a, a circum, I guess a very involved circumcision and Bruce's circumcision did not go well and he was completely mutilated down there uh, to the point that they almost burnt his penis off of his body. And they didn't know what to do, it's 1965. And they end up at Johns Hopkins in front of Dr. John Money, John Money explains to them that, that he is a, that gender is a construct, that it's just a, an idea, it's imposed on us by our environment and our parents and how we're raised and, and that the most compassionate thing to do for Bruce would be to uh, reform his genitals in the shape of female genitals and raise him as a girl. Just take him home, put a dress on him, tell him that he's a she, and because gender is a construct, everything will be wonderful. And so that's what they did. At two years old, he went, under, he went through transition surgery. By 13, he's suicidal. And in a moment of desperation, his mother spills the beans and tells him everything that has happened, and they make a decision at that point for him to transition back to his genetic uh, gender or sex, which is male. Well, in the meantime, oh, it's quiet in here. You guys are... This is, this is intense, right? I mean, this is intense. In the meantime... Dr. Money, from age 2 to 13, was doing therapy with the boys together. My wife tells me I'm not allowed to recount the details of that in church, so you know it was unspeakable stuff, taking pictures and photos for the science along the way. Well, the boys grew up, they got married, and in their 30s they both committed suicide. They were murdered by an abuser, in my opinion. But in those early years, money claimed success. And the fact that the whole thing went wrong later, well, it was too late again. It had already taken root in our culture and in, and in, uh, in academia and, and beyond. Modern gender theory is built on this failure. The father of modern gender theory was a man who thought child rape could be loving and that years-long sexual experiments on two unwilling children was a good idea. And none of this existed before 1955. <laughs> 
So my question for you is, what are you going to build your life on? What do you trust? The God who loves you, who knitted you together, who sent his only son to die in your place so that you could have life in all of its fullness. The God who's been pursuing you since you were born. Or a pervert who made up a theory, made up a theory in 1955 and abused children trying to prove it. Guys, the foundations that we build our lives on matter. We end up in places we don't want to be when we start building on the wrong foundation. Now, I know this raises all kinds of crazy questions about, well, well what do we do and how, how do I, how do I and what do I? And, and I just want to level the playing field here. God says everyone must restrain themselves sexually and otherwise. Like life doesn't work when we are just unrestrained in any area of our lives. Like we have guardrails and boundaries and they're there for our blessing, our benefit, and, 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 uh, and our, our well-being. And when we don't live within those guardrails, bad things happen. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Now, the church in Ephesus is a very sexualized culture. And this is what he says. They those without God, are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So their minds are dimming, their ability to, to discern truth, their ability to, to know what is, what is going on around them, their ability for knowledge and all is dimming, and they are separated from God because their hearts are growing hard. And he goes on. They've lost all sensitivity. This is the hardening of the heart. And they have given themselves over to sensuality, sexual gratification and lust, as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Guys, when we give ourselves over, when we don't attempt to live within the boundaries and the guidelines that we're talking about in this little mini-series here, that's what happens. Our minds begin to grow dim over time. Our ability to discern truth and a, and a separation between us and God. In Romans 1, 18, again, a sexualized culture that Paul's writing to, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being clearly seen from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Here's what, let me summarize what Paul's saying here in this first part. He's saying, nobody has an excuse. Look at the stars. Look how everything is perfectly timed and the moon is in perfect balance with, with everything else. And every, it's like a big giant clock. Like you look at that with an open mind and it's like, there has to be a creator. Look at the human being. Look at look, today. We, they didn't have this ability then, but today we can look inside the human cell. Oh, my gosh. Look at, look at the act of sex. Like there's so many things coming together. That's not like a very simple would evolve from this to this. You know, no. Like anybody with minds to see or eyes to see. You can see there's no excuse but what happened. For all they knew, although they knew God, although they could see God everywhere they looked, they decided not to glorify him as God nor give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, our hearts grow dark, our minds grow dark. Although they claimed to be wise, they were the learned ones. They were the scholars. They became fools. They couldn't see the truth and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, they exchanged the living God for idols. Now, our idols are different today, right? Our idols are, are greed and sex and pleasure and 
success, and I mean, I could get, go through a long, long list of them, but that, that's what, what we do the same thing. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. I'm going to point you back to last week again. I don't have time to unpack that sentence the way it deserves to be unpacked, but again, last week I think will help you with that. God designed sex to be engaged in as a wedding gift between a man and a woman who are in a covenant relationship of marriage. Outside of that, this is what God thinks of it. It is for the degrading of their bodies with one another. It's just for our own pleasure and gratification. God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. If there is any question, there are people online today who are trying to make some kind of argument that God is fine with homosexuality and all of that stuff. Any sexual act outside of a, a covenant married relationship between a man and a woman is sin. He leaves no room for ambiguity here in this. This is a hard word in the world and the culture that we live in today. He gave them over to what? A depraved mind to do what ought not be done. And that's what happens. We kind of go mad up here, we lose our ability to see what's really going on. They rejected God and they embraced their own unbridled sexual gratification and they descended into madness. This is what's going on in our culture today, guys. We're denying God, all of this. And once you un embrace your own unbridled sexual gratification, it will take you places. Last week I said you can control what you look at, you can't control what it does to you once you look at it. When we open ourselves up to lust, it takes us places. Again, back to Sodom, a bunch of all the men of the city and boys of the city wanting to rape the angels, or Jeffrey Dahmer who started by looking at porn and ended up with body parts in his freezer. Now, I'm not saying you're going to end up in Sodom or you're going to end up as a serial killer, but you very well may end up with a porn addiction that will destroy your marriage and blow up your family. And it just gets out of control, doesn't it? And, and if you're in that, you know that. It gets out of control. Now, I know this raises a million whatabouts. What about... What about same-sex attraction and being gay? I mean, Lady Gaga, the philosopher of our age, has said, you're born that way, right? And she's an authority. She should know. Um, maybe. I think the jury's out on that. I think, a, I think a lot of times, and we know this, a lot of times it, it, it harkens back to an abuse situation or sexualization, exposure to sexual content at a super early age, and you just can't control where that goes inside of you, right? But for the sake of conversation, let's just say you're born that way. Well, for all of us, it feels like, man, that's, that's, not, that's not fair. That's not fair. And I, I, I mean, I just want an honest moment with all of us. There's a lot in this life that's not fair. We all have things in our life that are not fair. There is this thing called original sin. We remember we talked about this back in chapter 3, when sin came into the world and infected all of humanity, and part of what it brought was death and decay. And we find there are people with, with a gene, about 10% of the population, with a gene that gives them a propensity to be sloppy drunks. And alcoholics, is that fair? It's not fair. Would it be loving to say, hey, go ahead and indulge that? No, that's not loving. There are, there's a portion of the population that are born with a gene that gives them breast cancer. It's not fair. There's a lot that's not fair in a world that's broken by sin. 
And you know what? I think we've bought into the happily ever after principle. We bought into two things. We bought into the Freudian philosophy that genital pleasure is, is the, the, the center of happiness for humankind. It's false. And we've bought into this happily ever after principle where, where, you know, the purpose of life is to fall in love and get married and ride off into the sunset. Thank you, Walt Disney. False. Like, I mean, if that happens for you, that's great, and it does look good on the movie screen. But that's not for everybody. What about the issue of transsexualism? Well, that's interesting for sure. The actual technical uh, word for that is gender dysphoria where someone th- believes that they are in the wrong body. I'm a, I'm a woman, but I'm in a man's body. Gender dysphoria is the, the medical terminology for that. Now, again, gender didn't exist before 1955, so all of this is kind of new. Before then, it was just men and women, and there have always been men who like to do girly things and women who are tomboys who like to go out and play with the boys. And, didn't mean they were a girl, or didn't mean the girl was a boy or the boy was a girl. It just, you know, we, we all have different interests and there's a continuum there. I know when I was six years old, what I wanted for Christmas was a Betty Crocker cook oven. You know, you put the light bulb in and out comes the cupcake because I love to cook. Today, they would put, my, not my parents, but there'd be pressure to put me in a dress and give me hormone blockers. I still love to cook. I'm all man. Now, on the issue of transsexualism, guys, this is, this is where we as the church must be full of compassion and love because 40% of these folks will commit suicide. It is a, it is a torturous dysphoria. And we're told that a sex change operation will fix that or transitioning will, is the, the mental health help that these people need. In, in 2019, there was a study called the Branstom Study that looked at the results of transitioning and the need for medical or psychological support after going through the transition. The idea is trying to find uh, data and evidence that this is the solution, transitioning is the solution. And they came out with that conclusion. Well, people started looking at it. About 12 different groups challenged them to go back and look at the data. And in 2020, the American Journal of Psychiatry issued a major correction to that 2019 study. The Branson study reanalysis demonstrated that neither gender-affirming hormone treatment or gender-affirming surgery reduced the need of transgender-identifying people for mental health services. In other words, it was all a lie. In other words, that doesn't solve the problem. And what they're finding is that as people go through the transitioning process, it's exciting and it's, a, it's distracting and they seem to do better for a season, but once they're settled into their new identity and new reality, the, the suicide rate skyrockets. It's not the solution because living a lie is not. The solution, it'll kill you. Transitioning is not the answer. Loving community, following the God who loves you is. You know, you can change the externals in a hormone or two, but you can't make a man a woman and a woman a man. There's 6,500 different genetic markers that make you either a man or a woman. And all of those markers express themselves in, in physical ways and or chemical ways in our body. Uh, so you can, you know, remove a body part or two and inject a couple hormones. It does not change 6,500 unique characteristics. If you're a guy, you have an X and a Y chromosome at the very blueprint of who you are. And if you're a girl, you have two X chromosomes. And even with medicine, Like there's medicines that work on two X chromosomes and medicines that work on an X and a Y. You can't change reality by how you feel. And we're doing this to children. Back in May, there was a, uh, Bill Maher did a little thing on one of his shows 
dealing with this topic in children. Now, Bill Mars, if you know Bill Maher, he's an atheist. He's not on our team. Uh, I think he's funny. Um, and I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but I, I appreciate the fact that he's willing to stick his neck out and say things that are true um, when nobody else will. I just want to show you, in regards to our children, just a short video clip. Take a look. And finally, new rule, if something about the human race is changing at a previously unprecedented rate, we have to at least discuss it. Broken down over time, the LGBT population of America seems to be roughly doubling every generation. According to a recent Gallup poll, less than 1% of Americans born before 1946, that's Joe Biden's generation, identify that way. 2.6% of boomers do. 4.2% of Gen X, 10.5% of Millennials, and 20.8% of Gen Z. Which means if we follow this trajectory, we will all be gay in 2054. (laughs) And then who's going to buy this chair? I'm just saying that when things change this much, this fast, people are allowed to ask, what's up with that? All the babies are in the wrong bodies? Was there a mix-up at the plant, like with Captain Crunch's Oops All Berries? (laughs) It wasn't that long ago when adults asked a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? They meant, what profession? In the wake of America about to lose abortion rights, the ACLU recently tweeted a list of those who would be disproportionately harmed by this. You would think women might top that list. No, wasn't even on the list. Second on the list was LGBT. Really? Abortion rights affects gay and trans people more than, you know, breeders? I'm happy for LGBT folks that we now live in an age where they can live their authentic lives openly. And we should always be mindful of respecting and protecting. But someone needs to say it. Not everything's about you. (laughs) And it's okay to ask questions about something that's very new and involves children. The answer can't always be that anyone from a marginalized community is automatically right, trump card, mic drop, end of discussion. Because we're literally experimenting on children. Maybe that's why Sweden and Finland have stopped giving puberty blockers to kids. Because we just don't know much about the long-term effects. Although common sense should tell you that when you reverse the course of raging hormones, there's going to be problems. We do know it hinders the development of bone density which is kind of important if you like having a skeleton. (laughs) Fertility and the ability to have an orgasm seem also to be affected. This isn't just a lifestyle decision. It's medical. Weighing trade-offs is not bigotry. Yet when a book questioning the sudden uptick in transitioning children was released, a trans lawyer with the ACLU named Chase Strangio tweeted, stopping the circulation of this book and these ideas is 100% a hill I will die on. How very civil liberties of him. Chase, by the way, has just been named one of the grand marshals of this year's New York City Pride March, along with three other trans people and a lesbian. Huh, what's missing here? Oh, right, a gay man. That's where we are now. Gay men aren't hip enough for the gay pride parade. You're not laughing. It is an upside-down world, isn't it? You know, the point he raises on on children, I think, is one that we all need to pay attention to. Um, He goes on at the end. He says, kids have phases. Kids are fluid about everything, he says. If they knew at age eight what they wanted to be, the world would be filled with cowboys and princesses. 
And then he goes on and says, you know, when I was eight, I wanted to be a pirate. Thank God no one scheduled me for eye removal and peg leg surgery. <laughs> Abigail Schreier, he put a book up, a fantastic book called Irreversible Damage, talks about how trendy this has become and how we are doing irreversible harm like sterilizing teenagers and especially among young girls. And uh, she's gotten all kinds of pushback and cancellation on that. But what she's found and many other, other research has found is that 80 to 95% of teenagers who go through a phase or young people who go through a phase of saying, well, I'm in the wrong body will outgrow that by the time they're an adult. And yet we're jumping in and we're blocking hormones and sterilizing them with, with hormones and surgeries and, and everything else. It's crazy. It's child abuse. And I don't say that as, as, hey, now I hate trans people. Like, like I said, I'm glad you're here. If you're trans, I'm glad you're here. I'm not your enemy. Just speaking some truth. And we do need to wrestle with these truths. And it's being pushed from culture as well. It's being pushed in TikTok. It's being pushed in social media across. And it's a craze. It's a craze. I was reading about a, a young girl in middle school who decided over the summer that she wasn't trans. She had been trans, you know, she identified as trans for a couple of years and did not want to go back to school because she was afraid that she would completely be rejected for being straight. That's the direction of the peer pressure these days. I know of another school where the boys in eighth grade all want to transfer out because there's not a straight girl in the entire school or in the entire eighth grade. This is, this is a craze. It's an identity crisis. And guys, as a culture, we are in an identity crisis. And it is so important that we choose the foundation for our identity well. Because where you end up ultimately, fully alive or growing dim in your heart and mind, depends on the foundation that you build your life on. It really does. Is your identity what you feel? Reality be damned. Or is it built on something bigger? Is it what you feel or is it who God says you are? This is who God says you are. This is what I believe the, the foundation, if you build your life on this foundation, it, it changes everything. And God says this about you. He says you are made in his image. Genesis 1, 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. You were created with the capacity to be in relationship with others and with God. You were created with the ability to reason and think and to, to create and to do so many other things in the image of God. You are either male or female. Genesis 1, 27, the second part, male and female, he created them. There are not other options. And the science backs that up. Look at biology. You are blessed by God. Verse 28, God bless them. You are a child of God. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been adopted into God's family, you are a child of God. That is your identity. And that is the identity to build your life on. You are God's special creation, Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork. He made you, specifically you. He created you, and he's got purpose for you. You're not just an accident. You didn't just show up here on accident. And he's got an important purpose. The rest of that verse says you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He has got a purpose and an adventure for your life that every day when you get up, he's got things planned out in advance, good for you to do, blessing for you to bring, to make a difference and to help other people find light and life and hope in him. He says, you're forgiven and you're made new, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. He's washed away all the regret and shame and guilt and sin. And the old is gone. The new creation has come. The, new, the old is gone. The new is here. He also says this about you. 
You have agency. You have a choice. You do not have to just follow your feelings. And in fact, if you want to live a great life, you won't just follow your feelings. Ephesians 4, through 24, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to what? To put off your old self. You have a choice, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. It changes our minds over time as we live differently. It re- neuroplasticity, go back and listen to last week. And to put on the new self, we put that on. We have a choice. We have agency created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He says that your brain can be rewired. Again, neuroplasticity, that the neuropathways in our mind as we, as we starve our addictions, as we change our behaviors, over time, our minds are, are made new. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, don't just do whatever the heck you feel like doing. Give it to God. Give your body to God. Living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. In other words, live differently, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind will be renewed in time, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The light starts coming on in our minds and our hearts as we live his way. Guys, if your identity is your sexual desire, if everything is about sex, your addiction will drive you to places you don't even even want to go. You don't really have control of it. Your identity is not your desire. It's not your dysfunction. It's not your addiction. It's not not any of those things. One of the things that drives me nuts is at AA meetings, and, and I'm all for AA, so please don't hear me talking down AA. I just, this one little point, hear me out. When you say, hi, my name's Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. Now, I get what's going on with that. Bob, Bob is finding the courage to own his addiction, to be able to say, this is what's true about me, and I need help, and that's powerful, and that's good. But Bob, you are not an alcoholic. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God. That's your identity. Your addiction is just something that you're struggling with, and we're all struggling with something. What's your identity? Every single one of us needs an identity that's bigger than us, bigger than what we feel, bigger than what we struggle with. It needs to be rooted in God's Word. And my friends, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you are a child of God, loved, cherished, full of purpose in His Holy Spirit, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are part of a holy priesthood. You are part of His family, and you have brothers and sisters all over the world and all over this room. You have the ability to choose his code of morality and ethics, and you are here to be the blessing and to help others find and follow your outrageously loving Heavenly Father. That's who you are, and you get to choose it or not. So what do you do if you have desires for the same sex or to dress as as the opposite sex? Same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria are very real. They're very real. And folks who are are wrestling with those things need us to throw our arms around them and love them and walk with them and include them in community and all of that. I have a very dear friend who wrestles with same-sex attraction. He's one of the most godly men I know. He chooses not to go there. He chooses to live for Christ, to lay down his, his life, a living sacrifice. And he knows that God said that's off limits. Just like if you're not married and you're sleeping with somebody, God says that's off limits. Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. And if you want to find your life, you've got to lose your life. It's not found in indulging it. It's found in being faithful to and following Jesus. And that's the only thing that is going to fill that empty in your heart and give you the life that you're looking for. And that's the truth. That's the truth. Having those desires 
That's not sin. Indulging those desires, fantasizing and filling our heads, dwelling on, on those desires, yeah, that's sin. You starve an addiction. You feed a good habit. Like me, my friend struggles with sin. We all do. All our struggles are different, and we all have different temptations. Some of you have out-of-control anger issues. Others of you are hopelessly addicted to pornography and lust. Others are prideful. Some of us are dealing with addiction and alcoholism or drug addiction. There are some of us who wrestle with greed, and I could go on and on and on. We all have our thing. So let us not judge one another and condemn one another, but let us love one another and walk out of these things because we can't get there alone. We've got to do it together. So don't let your struggle define you. You get to choose where your identity is rooted, and that makes all the difference. And the truth is we're all broken by sin. Most of us deal with sexual brokenness in one way or another. All of us have people that we love who are dealing with this topic of identity that we're talking about today when it comes to sexuality. We love them. We are the fullness of grace and truth in their lives. We walk with them. We don't lead with truth. We lead with grace. And we love well, and we point people to life in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that even when it's uncomfortable, the truth, even when the truth hurts, Lord, it's grace. And I pray that you would help us to live full of your grace, full of your truth. And Lord, as we struggle in these bodies of flesh, that are riddled with original sin. Lord, help us meet us and help us to love one another well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.